you're a compulsive overeater. Stand, so I'll stand. Um, I'm going to pass these pictures around. Um, all these pictures um, are at some stage of me in the program, and you'll see some thin ones and some not so thin ones. Um, it's not been a straightforward path for me in no way. Uh, and I think that's true uh, of a lot of people I've seen, but for me, it is um, still been a lifesaver for me. Um, you know, I came to my first meeting July 4th uh, weekend, 1983. Um, and, you know, it'll be almost 30 years of coming to meetings. There was a couple of year period of time, I can't remember how long it was, maybe three or four years, where I stopped going to meetings altogether. And except for that three or four years, around 2000, I've gone to a meeting, at least one meeting a week during that entire time. And, and I have to say, that is the, one of the few reasons I am here today still, is going to meetings on a regular basis has really saved me. Um, everyone in my family is a compulsive overeater. Um, I probably was born a compulsive overeater. Uh, when I was a year old, I weighed about 30 pounds, so I was a big kid. Uh, whenever I cried, my mother just fed me. She didn't know how much to feed babies, because this was her first baby. Uh, and I was a really big kid. And I don't know if that's what it taught me, cry, food, you know, comfort, but uh, I'm sure it has something to do with it. Um, and I just remember a lot of my childhood thoughts surrounded, you know, it was all around food. Um, I grew up in a pretty chaotic household, a lot of fighting, a lot of chaos. And for me, food was a great place to retreat. And I always looked forward to whatever it was. And um, back in the late 60s, early 70s, you know, they used the word husky. You don't hear the word husky. They even had husky jeans. I hated husky jeans. But you don't hear that word anymore. And uh, but that was the description for me. And every time we go to the doctor, my brother, who was about a year younger than I was, was totally thin. You know, um, he'd be like 38 pounds, 30 pounds, and I'd be 60, and we're a year apart. And the doctor would always say, look, you've got to lose some weight. And this is at six years old. You know, you've got to put him on, you know, say to my mother, you've got to put him on this diet. He can't be this heavy. And, you know, I look back at the pictures today, and standards have changed. I, I wouldn't look out of place at all today. So whether that's a commentary on society or commentary of what happened to me, I don't know. But, um, you know, I just was a big bone kid. And that's kind of how I grew up thinking about things. And everyone, you know, my mother and father were divorced uh, at a very young age. And I remember them always going on diets. And they, they both had huge problems with weight. And I remember I, you know, it was always food restricted. My brother got a much better lunch than I ever got. You know, there's nothing for me to trade out. You know, no one wanted <laughs> So I knew that at the beginning that I was different, you know, at least when it came to food. Um, when, and I remember uh, in 1976, uh, my father had lost about 70 pounds on the amino acid diet. And I remember that sort of the colored, I don't know what the hell it was. And so I went on that, and I was in the sixth grade at the time. And I don't know, I must have lost 12 pounds or something. But that was the first real time I was started using things to help control my weight. Um, you know, became a teenager, started exercising, the weight just being physical 
seemed to come down a bit. It didn't seem to be so much of an issue. But inside, I had the head of a compulsive overeater, and it was um, it was like a volcano inside my head. You know, for me, the food also was a great way to stuff down my feelings. And I was someone who was very much, uh, if you saw me, very stoic. You know, uh, the more upset I got, the quieter I became. Because, you know, if everything else was chaotic in the household, I had to do my best to not add to that. And so I sort of retreated into my own little world. And, and that's something that, you know, I've done for years and still continue to do at a certain time. So, you know, I was very, very quiet. Played sports, uh, got involved in tennis, uh, played lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of tennis. My father was a big tennis player. Um, you know, I, I was a great player, uh, unbelievable um, uh, style and form, but I never won so much because my head, I beat myself up, you know, I could just point it, and I would just rip myself to shreds during every single match, and it was amazing. And I look back on it now, and I defeated myself every time I went out there. And um, I remember I was 16 years old, and um, I, was gonna, I started to work with this new coach. Uh, he was, at the time, he had just finished coaching someone who was on a pro tour. So this was like a big step up for me. And I remember I went and had a first lesson with him, and he goes, okay, we're gonna change this, change this, change your stance, change your grip, game. come back next week. Work on this, come back next week. Come back next week, started hitting with him, and after about five minutes, he goes, okay, how long did you practice? I go, I didn't. Because we're hitting perfectly. Everything I ask you to change, you change. Flawless. He goes, What do you want to do? You want to play pro? You can play pro. You want to be on the circuit? You can play on the circuit. You want to play college tennis, Davis Cup? You name it, you can do it. But don't waste my time if you're not going to go all the way. So if you want to do it, you can do it. And I was like, Okay, I'll do it. I never went back. Never had another one. And I essentially at that point laid down the racket. And I don't know why. I never really enjoyed, I loved playing tennis, but after, even today, I'll go out for 20 minutes. After about 20 or 30 minutes, I'm like, I'm done. I don't want to play. I'm not sure why. And at the time, I didn't connect that incident to quitting. I just thought, you know, you got if you really think about it, you got to be kind of weird to spend eight hours a day hitting a ball over a net. And that's all you do for a living is hitting a ball over a net. It becomes really boring. Uh, and thank God I did not have that life. Um, I, I, and, and also my head. I wouldn't have done very well because I would have constantly beat myself up and I would have never moved on. So this, when offered something really fantastic, I was like, no, I'm going to retreat back into this world. And, and I found a lot of myself, I found myself doing that a lot. Went away to college, uh, wasn't playing tennis. All of a sudden, I don't know where this weight came from, but, you know, literally none of my clothes fit by about November of that first semester. And um, that was scary. I never had that happen to me so quickly. But this is the first time I, there was no one regulating me. It's the dormitories, it was uh, cafeterias, it's as much as you wanted to eat. And, and I ate as much as I possibly could eat. And, um, you know, inside, I, I, it, you know, it was, I really suffered very much from depression, insecurity, and it was just keeping it together. 
and I went back. Um, I guess it was uh, you know it was uh, winter break, and at the time I remember none of my clothes fit. I had one pair of jeans that fit, and I was at dinner with my father. It was Christmas Eve, and he goes, um, you know, you know what your problem is. I was like. Here we go. <laughs> you know, he was always into lecturing. And uh, he goes, you're a compulsive overeater. I'm a compulsive overeater. Everyone in our family is a compulsive overeater. And, uh, you know, I started going to this thing called OA. You need to go. And I was like, okay, whatever. I was like, okay, great, I'll do it. And, you know, I was like, just get him off my mind. But it somehow stuck in my mind. And uh, I didn't think anything of it until summer I was back. And, you know, I had been dating someone in that semester and uh, a compulsive overeater. Wow, surprise. Uh, great binge buddy. And I went away. I think the school ended late May. And then I went back and saw her. Uh, she was staying down at school uh, doing a summer session. And she put on 15 pounds in like three weeks after I left. I was like, oh my God. And at the time, I thought I was getting into the thing about, you know, you should try OA. And I was like, 4th of July weekend. My girlfriend's up. Uh, and so, I'm like, let's go check this thing out. And I was really doing it for her. <laughs> uh, because, you know, part of the thing is that when I was growing up, uh, you know, my mother was just, um, you know, she was addicted to pills. She'd come home. She'd, you know, just take some pills. She's on down. And, and I was the person, you know, at five, six, seven years of age who, you know, everyone turned to. She turned to me. My brother turned to me, et cetera. So I was always in rescue mode. So here I am again with a woman in rescue mode. So this was just a perfect combination. So I went to the meeting, and it was like for newcomers or something, and it was really awful. And um, I just thought, okay, I don't know what my father was thinking, but this isn't it. Um, I went back to another meeting a couple weeks later. I don't know why I went, but I went. And um, it was about meeting this size. It was in the evening. And uh, it was stunning. Because they weren't talking about, you know, binging and not being able to stop. They were talking about the feelings. They were talking about how they felt when they ate and how they felt about themselves and what drove them to compulsively overeat and the struggles of trying to stop and not being able to stop even when every fiber of their body wanted to stop eating. And it amazed me because I can't say I ever had those thoughts. I couldn't give voice to those thoughts, but when I heard them, I could automatically relate. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. This is exactly what I've been feeling. I just didn't have the vocabulary inside myself to sort of understand it, but I could from what everyone else was going through. And that, you know, identifying was, to me, that was huge. And right then, I knew that there was something there. And, and since that point, you know, except for that short time frame uh, in around 2000, I've been going to meetings weekly. And, you know, this is Washington, D.C., 1983. Um, there's nobody under the age of 30. I was in there with a bunch of middle-aged housewives. Uh, I'm probably now older than a lot of those middle-aged housewives. Uh, but, you know, when you're 18, 25 is middle-aged. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm the only guy. Yeah, I, I really don't understand why I kept going back. Because, you know... There was no one I could sit there and go, oh, they're just like me, you know, physically or their you know, life circumstances or anything like that. But everyone, I could say, they're just like me when I live and talk. 
and when I heard them talk about food. And that, to me, was just absolutely stunning because I never heard it about anywhere else. So, started in OA. Um, I'd love to say I got accident on day one. Didn't happen. I didn't even think about getting accident. I just was stunned at what I was hearing at meetings. During that summer, um, as I was checking out the meetings, I went on some radical diet. I was, uh, well, before, in, in the fall, coming in the springtime, before summertime, I'd gone this big diet to lose all the weight I was, you know, gained in the freshman uh, first semester. And the secret was, if I went to the dining hall with all my roommates, they, you know, they, I said, can I have this? Yeah. Can I have that? No. So, I had someone telling me what I could eat at every single meal. And I ended up eating a lot less and exercising and losing, you know, a tremendous amount of weight. Too much weight. See, I always had this idea, well, if I got down to 170 pounds, things would be better. My grades would be better. I'd have a better social life. I'd have a girlfriend. And I get to 170 pounds and none of that stuff happens. So then I go, well, then the number is 160. And I get down to 160. Uh, maybe a girlfriend, but uh, I want a better girlfriend. Uh, and, and great. So 150 must be the number. Now I'm 183 today. I got down to 147 pounds. And uh, I still, and it still wasn't happening. That must not have been the number. It had to be lower. But it couldn't go, and I started, you know, I was sick all the time. I had a cold all the time because I was too thin. Uh, but in my mind, that's how I equated, you know, for me it was, how can I control my life? Because it's so out of control. My emotions are so out of control. And that's at the point, you know, I went to my first OA meeting because I was terrified of gaining it all back. And I knew it was just a question of time of gaining it all back. And I couldn't face that. And... I was looking for a solution. Um, and so I started going to the meetings. Didn't get asked it right away. Um, took me about two or three years. Uh, and uh, back then we had gray sheets. Uh, and when you're 18, 19 years of age, uh, gray sheet is a tough one. Uh, it's very restrictive. <laughs> and Carol was talking about that last week. It was true. And I got a sponsor, and this was and this was in Charlottesville, Virginia. There was like one person who was asking. There was like seven people once in the meeting. And this one woman, this nursing student, came down from Boston, and she had like a year of abstinence. And we're like, wow. <laughs> you know, it was funny. You had a step meeting, and she talked about doing the fourth step. And so I'm like, you're abstinence. So she became my sponsor. And, you know, I, I said to someone, I said, she wants me to write an inventory. I mean, she actually does this stuff. I mean, we were just incredulous. You see, it was really an intellectual exercise. You know, it's like a philosophical discussion. That's what the meetings were about. No one was focused on recovery. Um, and so this idea, I'm like, well, can I have this? No. Can I have that? No. And she goes, look, I'm an AA. I'm sober. I can only teach you what I do myself. So all my sponsors, no alcohol. That's part of the, uh, the food plan. Part of the abstinence. And I thought... This is OA. This is not AA. I'm sorry. Uh, you're taking away the food. You're not taking away the alcohol. <laughs> in college, you know, University of Virginia was like the big party school in the 1980s. So I was like, well, I just won't tell her. And if the food ever becomes an issue, if I go out and get drunk and then eat a, you know, a pizza or something, then I'll stop drinking. Well, I did that time. I, I was fired in about three weeks as a sponsor, and I drifted along. And I couldn't get abstinent until I finally got honest with my drinking. 
and that's a whole nother story. Mm-hmm. But it is, uh, for me, um, I had to get honest with all of it. And, and finally I did. And I literally was abstinent. I gave up sugar. You know, I'll have rum and coke, but Diet Coke. Mm-hmm. You know, rum and sugar cane, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, so it, it didn't matter what I was drinking along with that. It was sugar. But I know I was staying away from because for me it's chocolate, it's sweets, it's desserts, it's recreational sugar as we call it. And I'd given up the sugar, and I, and, but I hadn't given up everything else. And so I graduated. I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. Uh, I was a history major, which means no job. And I, I was barely sober. And I, I was a wreck. So doing job interviews didn't work. Uh, and so I got this idea of... Um, I'm going to go live in France. I'm going to move to Paris. It sounded pretty good. <laughs> People said, wow, that's, you know, someone's going to law school, got this job at IBM, what are you doing? And I was like, well, I said, I'm moving to Paris. Wow, okay. So I was about four months of talking about it. I graduated, and I said, hey, for my graduation present, just give me a ticket. I want to go over there and see what it's like. Uh, I did not speak French. Uh, I had some very, 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 very distant cousins there. Uh, they don't speak English. Uh, and I remember traveling around the countryside. It was, I, somehow I maintained an semblance of abstinence, got to Paris, went into the American church. I went to an AA meeting. I raised my hand, you know, at the end of the meeting when he asked for announcements and said, you know, any announcements? I said, yes, I'm Peter. I'm alcoholic from Charlottesville, Virginia. I'm about three weeks over. I need to talk to someone after me because I'm going to drink. So this guy come up, came up to me and he goes, let's talk. He goes, I'm from Charlottesville, Virginia. I was like, oh. And he's over writing a book, living in Paris. And then this other woman named Nancy walks up to me and she goes, are you in LA? I said, um, yeah. And to this day, I don't know how she figured it out. She goes, you know, we have an OA meeting downstairs in about 15 minutes. Why don't you come down? And I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, and I just, that stunned me. For me, that, there are these little things from the higher power. This was one of them. And I ended up staying there two years. Got abstinent. Paris is the easiest place in the world to get abstinent. Uh, oh. <laughs> because, now it's changed a little bit now, but, you know, if I want chocolate, I have to go into chocolate shop. If I want bread, I have to go into the Blue Angelique. I'm not going to find that somewhere else. So if I just don't walk into those stores, I'm fine. That made it very easy for me. And you know what? At 3 o'clock if you want lunch, that's changed now. But back then, you weren't getting lunch. Because it's 12 to 2. It's free. The French are very rigid. I'm like, I'm starving. Come back later. I'll give you money. Get out of here. You know, I mean, literally, it was very regulated. You were not eating between meals. And, um, and, and if you ate walking down the street, they'd say things to you. I mean, it was stunning. So, in a way, I just fell in that rhythm of life, had a sponsor, started, you know, went to meetings, the two meetings they had a week. And, uh, five more. And so that began uh, a journey. Um, during that time, there's probably about 20 people in OA, English-speaking OA. There's probably another 10 or 15 people in French-speaking OA. And I remember um, I started dating someone there, and we had the same sponsor. So I said to my sponsor, I said, oh, this is not fair to you. I'll find somebody else. Uh, and you can keep sponsoring her. I did not find another sponsor until 2005. That was 1987. Uh, I left. I came back. 
uh, moved around the country, lived in different places, stayed abstinent, got about 14 years of abstinence. But very slowly, I began to put on weight. I had a car accident, uh, hurt my shoulder, I couldn't exercise, it was physical therapy, I was in pain, started gaining some weight, and very, very slowly. And I look at pictures now, and it was very clear I was slowly putting on weight about five years before I ever left the program. And, what I, and I, I began to see I couldn't, it didn't seem to work. And I thought in my mind, oh, it didn't work. Well, what wasn't working was me. I didn't have a sponsor. I talked to people in the program, but more friends than someone who was going to help me with the steps and recovery. So I go to meetings, I do secretary meetings, I do service commitments, I sponsor people. I didn't have a sponsor. And slowly I left. And um, because I could handle it. So when I was 147 pounds, I was terrified. I had no control over my weight, and I gained it all back. But when I got up to 235, I had it all under control, and at any point, if I really wanted to, I could stop. Mm-hmm. And that's why I kept telling myself, well, I really want to you know, give this up, I can give it up. And that, to me, is the two sides of the disease for me, the insanity of it. And uh, a lot of stuff happened during that time. During that time, you know, my father, who I worked with, died suddenly, uh, and that was devastating. But because of OA, um, you know, when I came to the program, I hated my parents. I resented them to no end. To the point where some people who knew me when I first started going to meetings said, you know, I, if they saw me like a year or two later, how are you and your parents doing? I was like, fine, why? They go, oh man, when you were new, you just hated them. <laughs> and I ended up working with my father. And, um, you know, when he died suddenly, you know, it was devastating for me. But there was no unfinished business, there was no guilt. There's no, I, I wish I had only done this, or said this, or fixed that. None of that. And that was amazing. You know, and he had heart problems, and I had the same thing. I went to the doctor, and he did all these tests, I just like high cholesterol, and would, you know, just drugs, nothing were treated, and he did the sort of scan of your arteries. And the doctor called me up, and he goes, this is unbelievable, because my cholesterol was well over 300. It's like 340 or something. And he goes, your cholesterol is 340. Your, your arteries are completely clean. I've never seen that. He goes, that's impossible. I, I can't explain how that, that's happening. He says, you're lucky, you know, that you have no plaque uh, filled up or anything. And I thought at that time, I said, you know, that's from all those years in OA, staying abstinent, you know, not binging, staying off the sugar. And that was that moment of clarity for me. I was like, eh. And I kept eating another two years. You know? I had it, and I was like, yeah. And, you know, the doctor said, basically, I have a 100% chance of a heart attack. He goes, you're going to have it next year, or you're going to have it in 20. The choice is yours. But, this is what you're going to do. And this was an experimental program. He's like, uh, you're going to lose 50 pounds. You're uh, going to run the marathon next year. All my patients run the marathon. You've got to get in great shape and do all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And he goes, I'm going to give you these. We're trying a new experimental drug thing. And, you know, 12 years ago, this was experimental. Mm-hmm. Today, it's, it's pretty commonplace. And um, I was like, okay. You know, I didn't know what to think of this. But faced with imminent heart attack, I still kept I wasn't ready. And I tried controlling it, and I lost the weight. I couldn't give up the sugar. You know, I'd do these marathons. I'd injure myself. Then the weight would come back on. 
I trained, do another marathon, the weight would come off, and then it would come back on. And finally, in 2005, um, I knew OA was the only thing that worked. So I came back kitchen sink. Kitchen sink. And it was um, just about the weekend before Thanksgiving. And I mean, before Halloween, because Halloween before I raided my kids' candy, uh, you know, and I felt horrible about it. But I thought, you know, these two. <laughs> I'm saving him. That was my rationalization. And I came back, and yet again, coming into the meeting, there was someone, you know, a guy sponsored 15 years prior in Philadelphia was in, that, in, in this meeting. And to me, I'm always looking for that. That was my sign that I was supposed to be here. And uh, the next week, I got a sponsor and uh, began working the steps and have been asking since. Since my time is up, I was a whole lot more, but we'll leave that to the Q&A. Thank you. This is the time for questions only. There is no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leader are my own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not, you need not identify yourself. Uh, please remember, if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast. Yes. Thanks very much, Peter. Once you came back, could you talk about how you worked the program and worked the Yes. Uh, so when I came back, first thing I did was get a sponsor. And, um, and that was, I think, key to everything. And in the beginning, I called my food in for a little while. I don't do that now, uh, except when things get every once in a while and they start getting a little bit funny. Um, one thing that um, I've done a lot of work with, you know, are doing inventories. Sometimes my sponsor has me write inventories in a specific way. Um, I had, um, and, and, and this is somewhat relevant, um, I had a sponsor in AA who I actually met in OA years before. Uh, and um, we did a lot of work on the inventory process and writing inventories, very much as it is in the book. And for me, that was a great tool because it was never my fault. Ever. I'm a victim of circumstances. I'm a nice guy. How can this happen to me? You know? And the 10th step goes, no. You're not a nice guy. You're a regular person and you have some good things and you have some bad things. And let's take a look and see how my character defects brought to bear on this situation. And if I give them to a higher power to remove, I won't have that resentment anymore or that conflict with that person, even if they have a conflict with me. And so my whole life was spent trying to solve my problems. I can't solve any of my problems. What the 10th step in the inventory process did for me was allow me to look at the problem in a different way. It, maybe there's a different way I can look at this and approach this, not to solve it. And then the answer comes. And, you know, my sponsor loves to say, you know, you're either going to change your actions or change your attitude. And a lot of times it's changing my attitudes that I have to do and changing my actions at times. And so that, for me, now I know walking into a situation, I'm not blameless. And it tends to, for me, be a little bit more willing to listen to someone else when they have a problem with me. Because before, I'd be like, no. And, and that really creates some huge problems. So doing the 10th step for me in an inventory process is helpful. And then um, 
I've been spending a lot of time on this A, B, and C thing. You know, A, we're compulsive leaders and cannot manage our own lives, which is step one. B, that no human power could have relieved us of our compulsive overeating. Step two, God could and would if you were sought. Step three, I can replace the word compulsive overeater with something else. I'm not going to solve my own problem. The higher power is. And if I want to know what God's will is, I just have to open my eyes. Like it or not, it's what's happening in front of me. And so it's my job to accept that, even if I don't like it, even if it's really bad, to be in acceptance. And so those, you know, higher power and 10 steps have been huge for me. And then when you do the 10th, you do 6 and 7, it sort of brings it all in there. So, yes? Um, thank you very much. Sure. Can you talk a little about what is difficult for you in your actions today? Difficult for me in my actions. Um... I would say probably, you know, I have my food plan, which is part of my abstinence. You know, extra, regular exercise, come to meetings is also part of my abstinence. I would say when I start going down the path of a food that's fine, I can have, but then I find I'm having it twice a week, three times a week, every meal, you know. Then all of a sudden it's like saying, calling my sponsor and saying, you know, I'm having a lot of this. And I'll go, okay, why don't you go for a week without it? But to me, to get to that point of a phone call is the hardest thing for me, and admitting it. You know, it's very clear when I'm, I'm very focused on my food plan and when I'm beginning to deviate a little bit from it. And so it's getting to that point uh, and saying, I'm deviating here, I shouldn't be having this thing. You know, whether it's frozen yogurt or energy bars or things like that. Um, you know, that's why I have to say, you know, I gotta cut it out. Yes. Uh, thank you. How do you use this whole stuff and put them in your marriage and have it now? Ooh, okay, that's a good one. Uh, um I say really, um the thing that I've been working on lately, just did a ten step on this last weekend. Um, one of the things that I have to go back to is um, I'm not in charge. I may not like how things are, and that really doesn't matter. People are the way they are. My wife is the way she is. My kids are the way they are. I'm not changing them. I will never change them. I cannot change their circumstances. So I have to trust in a higher power that what is happening and unfolding is exactly what's supposed to be happening. And um, and so for me, it's accepting what's going on in front of me. You know, um, I have an issue with money. You know, financial insecurity with my wife. Um, and I remember things were horrible. I, I mean, in 2008, 2009, when things were going bad, you know, my income dropped like 60%. It was a very scary time for me. And I come home one day, and she has this new puppy dog. <laughs> you know, I always wanted a puppy dog. And I was like, no, the kids are little. You shouldn't have a dog when the kids are under like four years of age. And this new puppy dog. And I was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> and I find out this puppy dog costs a few thousand dollars. And I hit the room. I'm like, 
I have no money. And you just want this stupid dog and I and to me that told me I have someone who is not only not a partner, is actively working against me. <laughs> you know, and I mean that was a big inventory, you know. Um, I spent a lot of time on that. And what I had to come to realize was one, she wasn't doing it to me. Well, there's a little part of retaliation, but um, it fit a pattern. This was nothing new. So I had a choice. Either I put up with it and try and work with it, and it's just one element of who she is, or I don't, and I get out of the marriage. That's my choice. Change my action, change my attitude. And the 10th step helps me do that. Um, and today, it is, this is what's going on. And as long as I don't get into my demand as to, oh, well, I should have this and this, and they should be doing this for me, and that, that, that sets me up every single time. And accepting them exactly as they are. Very hard. My kids, um, you know, my daughter, I can tell she's got this disease. My son, not a compulsive bone in his body, but my daughter, right there. I mean, I found her hiding things once, you know, some chocolate. I'm like, oh, wow, I know that. And, you know, I told her, you know, here's been my, you know, here's what it was like when I was a kid, and here's what happened, and, you know, I can't have sugar today because, you know, maybe I was how I used it as a kid and ate, just got into it too much, or I don't know. But I said, you might want to watch out for this because your father has it, everyone in his family has it, and, you know, and she sort of heard it. She sort of heard it, but I don't bring it up again. Um, and she may become a compulsive reader, and that's nothing I can do whatsoever. There's nothing I can do about that except be an example. And they know. Kids know. It's like, um, uh, you know, my daughter, I've been asking it pretty much most of her life, but they don't see me eat sugar. And they're like, wait, does that have sugar in it? And then, you know, they're, the, they're better enforcers than I ever am. <laughs> like, no, you can't have that. It'll kill you. You know, and um, so it's kind of funny, but, you know, I'm blessed in that there's no, you know, physical ailments, there's no illness or things like that. That always makes acceptance a hugely difficult process. But my kids have a higher power. My wife has a higher power. I don't have to be there to fix it all for them all the time. I'm not going to make it right. They're going to be fine with me. They're going to be fine without me. You know? They all have a higher power. And if I believe that they have a higher power, things are going to work out. Today, yesterday is a big day for my son. He's applying to middle school. He sent out all the acceptances on March 15th. And he's like, uh, I just like, look, you're going to get into where you're supposed to get into. And it's going to be the perfect place, even if you don't think it is. And it'll be fine. Why? Because this is a way of unfolding, and you have a God that's watching over you. And I've been very non-stressed about it. You know, and I see these other parents, and they are freaking out. I'm like, they don't even ask me where I went to college. They don't give a shit where you went to high school or middle school. <laughs> you know, and they're like, really? I don't know, really. I know. So it doesn't matter. But that is how I work with them. I have to have a good spiritual program and believe that I have a higher power to believe that they have a higher power that's going to take care of them. And I don't have to be it. I love being someone else's higher power. Sir? Speaking of which, um, how much has your your, 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 your,
It's okay. Um, how much have you changed since the higher power? Believing in it. Yeah. Thanks. Um, how how's my how's my belief in the higher power changed? It has changed um, in that I believe I had to do some really good things and then God would approve of it and then I get what I want. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, well, if I'm asking and I eat this way and I do this, then things are going to be better in my life. And they're not. And I'm like, I got asking it. Come on, where is it? You know, I did this stuff. I did that stupid inventory. How come things aren't better? You know, it was a very much rewards based relationship with God. Um, for a long time, I was praying to have the fear of economic insecurity removed when I had a lot of real economic insecurity. And it wasn't going away. And I couldn't figure it out. And I talked to my sponsor about it and he says, well, stop praying for having that removed. I'm thinking, well, how's it going to get removed then? Yep. Just pray to be of service. About three weeks later, the fear was lifted. Because by praying about it and putting it up there, it, it, it stayed in that obsessive thing that, oh, God, you've got to make it better by my definition. God's definition of taking care of me and removing my fear of, insecure, of economic insecurity may be that I lose my job, I lose my house, and I'm bankrupt, and I'm fine with that. Not my idea. <laughs> but what it comes down to what that whole thing taught me was nothing's going to kill me you know if I lose my you know if I identify myself at, by my profession and I lose my job what am I if I identify myself as to uh, uh, you know what club I belong to and I'm out of that club what am I or where I live where am I I'm nowhere but if I have a belief that no matter what happens lose the house, lose the job, I'm not going to starve, then I'm going to be okay. And that, to me, is how things have changed the most. I still sometimes go back. You know, most of my problems, you know, romance, finance, you know, worried about that, trying to control it. And that is, and if I turn it over, then I'm okay. Um, and that's where I have to believe that everything is happening for a reason. Um, I'm not sure. I, things are unfolding the way they are. I don't have control over it. Is that predeterminization? You know, is God just deciding this is the way the world is and you have, as me as a human being, have, I have no um, free will? Yes and no. I think things are going the way they're going to go. Do I have free will? Absolutely. It's like God is in charge of the animal birds. There's someone who moved in next door to me. I'm in charge of the adjectives. A really loud, obnoxious family moved in next door to me. Or, a really great family moved in next door. You know, I work in the investment business. People say, what do you do? I thought the rich get richer. <laughs> That's true. Or, I also say, and I now say, you know, those things that keep you up at three in the morning, worrying, that's what I help my clients solve. I help them deal with those problems. Same job, completely different description on how I look at it. And that's what I have to tell myself because that informs my worldview. And it's the same with everything. How I look at it determines the reality, not what's happening. And that, to me, and the difference between the old way and the new way is trusting them being completely taken care of by God. Yes? Oh, thank you so much, Peter, for your care. 
Yes. Um, it was, you know, very sudden. Got a phone call, had a heart attack. I mean, he was probably more surprised than any of us. And, um, you know, at the time we were working together, and, uh, it, it, you know, it's one of those things. Where, could it ever happen at a worse time? No. And I remember um, flying out there, hoping to see him before he died. And, uh, or hoping, you know, at that point I thought, well, maybe he'll live and things will be okay. You know, that's sort of bargaining thing that we do in our mind. And, you know, I was able to see him before he passed away. Really couldn't, he wasn't really conscious. But, you know, as sad as I was, there was no unfinished business. We had a great relationship. You know, at the time, I wouldn't talk to him when I got into the program. And then we ended up, you know, albeit working in different cities, 3,000 miles apart. We worked together. I must have talked to him seven or eight times a day, and we had a wonderful relationship. I had a, you know, I could be upset with God for taking away uh, my father at a fairly young age, or I could be grateful that I had a great experience being able to work with a parent and seeing them in a completely different capacity than being my parent. And that is really interesting as a child. And it was a great experience, and I loved it. And I feel so grateful that I had that I got that chance to have that with him. And there was no unfinished business. And my mother, who was divorced from him 35 years prior, she never forgave him. And I'll tell you, that death hit her hard. And she was very, very upset and remorseful. She had a very, very difficult time because she had never forgiven. She had never gone through the process of forgiving him and taking a look at what her part of things were. I had cleaned up my side of the street. And so as hard as it was, um, my relationship with him was fantastic. And I think, and that's all due to steps. We have time for like one more. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, really quick. Uh, when I got to see that uh, my problems were not their fault, they're my fault. And um, and to the degree that they're my fault is me trying to change circumstances to fit my needs and instead of trusting in a higher power and then getting angry at my family or whoever's around me for not giving me what I want. So the steps, especially doing the, you know, the fourth step, uncovering all that stuff, seeing what the nature of the relationship is, and then my character defects that I have to work on, that slowly, very slowly, over time, and then giving them a chance and loving them. My mother drove me crazy. She still drives me crazy. But that's, that's the way she is. So we have a great relationship because I'm not trying to change her. She's crazy. She likes being crazy. God bless her. I think that's it.